The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Welcome to the Provoke Media Podcast and this episode in which we discuss why language matters in the intersection of business and politics. I'm Megan Keoghan, host of today's episode and joined by Global Strategy Group Partner and Managing Director Tanya Meck. Is it possible to talk about ESG values without running into the culture wars? How do I build and protect my brand in a divisive political environment? We'll unpack these and many more takeaways from the 10th edition of GSG's Business and Politics Report in today's episode. Tanya, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. It's great to chat again. I'm very excited to talk about a totally different uh, topic than we have did in our last episode together. Um, but today we're here to talk about the business and politics report. Tell us a little bit about your role at GSG, just for some quick background, and then um, maybe some background on this particular report. Sure. So my role at GSG is to lead the communications and public affairs practice across the U.S., uh, and then in conjunction with our global partner, SecNewGate. And that role is client strategy and and day-to-day work. It's running the business and growing the business. Um, And it's some thought leadership, sort of how to bring uh, what we know to to our clients and beyond. And that's the business and politics report that we're going to talk about uh, a little bit today. And we've been doing this, yeah, for 10 years now. Uh, It went by in a flash. Um, when we were doing it, the concept of an intersection between business and politics, you know, was was new. Um, but we've got data. You've got a decade worth of data, and so while we think everything you know that's happening today is new under the sun, that's not quite so. So we've got great perspective to bring to the to the conversation. I'm going to really excited to talk about some of the things that I'm sure um, all of your listeners are are hearing and seeing um, in the news every day. Um, so first things first, is this, um, where, where is the best place to access some of this data or report for any of our listeners who might want to kind of follow along with us today? Sure. If you go to the GSG website, globalstrategygroup.com, you can go under the insights tab, all our thought leadership uh, will be there. And so uh, it's probably easier if you do go there and follow along with, with some of the data. It's, as you and I were discussing, it's always challenging to talk about data um, without a whole bunch of graphs uh, and charts to, to relate to, but we'll try to do that verbally um, today Excellent. as well. And Megan, the other thing that I should say is when you, you asked about this report and you mentioned the conversation today will be different than the last one, right? Just to, to remind yep. people, the last time we talked, we were talking about the creative side and sort of how our creative group, the lab, coordinates with the communications and public affairs work. Today, we're taking it to the other side of GSG, uh, which is our, our research um, practice. And so this report really marries the communications experience with the research and polling experience that we have in-house at GSG. So it's going to be fun to talk about a, a different part of the business, but challenging Absolutely. without all the numbers. Yeah. Well, and I do encourage folks, we will link it um, on the Provoke Media website within um, the article alongside this. It is really digestible information. And I think that's um, from like lay eyes. It's a it's a pretty cool report to look at, um, especially as you were, you know, as we were prepping for this call, Tanya, sharing just like what a distinct and unique 
uh, landscape we're living through right now in the in the scope of um, the ESG world, but the political realm and how that impacts business, um, which I suspect you can tell us a bit about how how different this report felt to produce this year than per- perhaps in some years past. Yeah, so in some ways it felt very similar, right? Because if you look at the report, you'll see, you know, if, if you look at the question specifically, corporations have a responsibility to bring about social change on important issues facing society, right? Real straightforward question. We've been asking it since before 2017. And if you look over time, the answer of the percent of Americans who agree with that statement, corporations have a responsibility to bring about social change has stayed pretty consistent. In 2017, it was 77%, 2022 at 79%. It's fluctuated as high as 86, um, and it's never fallen under 77. And so consistently, that is the answer. Then each report teases out you know, a little bit of that. What, is the, what does this mean? And this year, when we started looking at ESG, um, and particularly the attacks on woke companies or woke capitalism, and then the tie back to, to ESG, and we can talk a little bit about what you know, ESG means. Um, it was fascinating to us because uh, the data shows some really distinct differences in language and how you talk about something. Um, that we didn't always see in the other reports. They, they, those findings may have been a little bit more nuanced. Um, this is a lot clearer. We also looked directly at people's expectations of policymakers in this space. And for the first time, we see a real deep disconnect between American voters um, and some policymakers. And we can talk about you know, why we think that is. Absolutely. Well, let's, um, let's kick things off. Um, just quickly background, um, who was pulled for this and how did, like, how did the survey come to life or what's the procedure? Sure. So we pull a thousand, uh, Americans. We do this every year. Um, we ask some trend questions and then try to add some, some new ones. Um, but our, our pollsters help us write the questionnaire, we have statistically significant samples. We make sure that we've got enough Democrats and Republicans um, so that we can look at political differences. Um, and then in conjunction with our communications team, um, pulls together this report. And it really is, you know, the intersection. We've got some case studies in here that folks can take a look at, look at and then some hard data um, on how. I, what I like about it, Megan, is it's really, as you put it, you can navigate the data. And I think it shows some clear paths forward for our clients and others. And that's one of the things I'm most excited about. One particularly interesting thing that jumped out at me, not just because it was towards the top of your report in the key findings, but throughout um, is the the insights around the term ESG and sort of how maybe perception has really changed, evolved uh, and differentiated from past years when this has been like such a, a big topic to discuss. Um, and wondering if you can go into a little bit about what surprised you about ES, the ESG findings. Was that something you were surprised by? Um, how people perceive the term? Yes, you had lots of thoughts on it. So I'm, I'm yeah. curious to chat more on it. Um, well, a lot of us who have been charged with communicating ESG over the past several years uh, were surprised that 59% of Americans didn't know what the term 
was. I mean, surprise, not surprised, right? It's what happens when you're in your own little own little echo chamber. Um, so, so Americans don't know what it means. Um, we can frame it in a various number of ways, all accurate, and get wildly different reactions between you know different groups, and particularly you know because we're focused so much on the the politics of this issue between Democrats and and Republicans, right? So. Um, if you look at the data and you ask Democrats and Republicans um, if they approve of companies that speak out on social and political issues, right, you can see the net approval for Democrats is 50 and for Republicans it's negative eight, right? So a wild, wild swing. If you talk about companies that have ESG initiatives, 82 net approval for Democrats, 34 for Republicans. So, you know, 48 point difference. Um, again, people don't really know what ESG is, but they... Yeah. Some of them believe it to be a dirty word, right? So that's that's the swing there. When you move to companies that speak out on issues that are important to their employees and customers, the gap is only 16 points, right, between Democrats and Republicans. And then when you say companies that try to have a positive impact on their communities, which is essentially at the core of ESG, yeah. the gap is five points, right? 87% of Democrats and 83 percent of Republicans uh, net approve of that statement. So it is it's it was so interesting to us to see, you know, that the term ESG um, has become weaponized by a small, I would say a small group of ultra conservatives who are spending a lot of talk show airtime, a lot of ink time um, on that topic. And it doesn't resonate with most of the voters. But their base and part of their base believe it to be a, a dirty word. And because it's not defined, you know, they've defined it. It is defined, but because it's not defined in the public consciousness, they've defined it for them. Uh, obviously, audience comes into a very big play, right? Knowing, knowing one's audience. Um, where would a business begin to assess if they actually know their audience or they think they know from like the bubble or to your word just a little bit ago, the, the echo chamber that they're in, I would imagine that the topic and the the risk factors of various topics uh, span based upon who your audience is. And, and is there any sort of guidance or process or recommendation on how to navigate those risk factors by topic? Yeah. I mean, if you, if you think about, let's start with the audience question sort of writ large, right? You think about some of your key audiences, your employees. A lot of our clients have employee surveys. They have employee groups. There's there's internal communications. And so there is usually, although employee bases can be very diverse as well, there's usually some type of corporate consensus Um ladder up to your corporate values, right? They often use corporate values, uh, vision, mission, and values sort of as a filter for what they will participate mm -hmm. in, in on, et cetera. Um, so employees are, are a really important group. When you talk about external audiences, you know, the, the data that we've seen when you look at consumers of goods and professional services writ large, there's still not a lot of reputational risk because remember what we said when we set this up. A lot of Americans don't know and a lot of Americans don't care. They think companies should do good, but it stops. It often stops there, right? Um, when we looked at consumer purchasing behavior, so we looked at, are you more inclined to purchase if a company is a good corporate citizen? Um, are you less inclined to purchase because you think ESG is a dirty word, right? The boycotts and the boycotts, so to speak. We saw some movement 
um, but not a lot. So not a lot of risk with your customer base, generally speaking. And again, this is across all types of companies, yep. all, all, all types of, of, of customer bases. Place we found the most risk is the political risk, what I just said, right? Yep. Being uh, tweeted about, called before Congress, um, you know, sort of exposed for your for your ESG practices. Um, and so, but but you got to look at your your customers, your clients, your investors, and you've got to understand what their view of ESG is. You have to understand what their appetite is, um, and then you, you got to weigh those those different risk factors in making a decision. And then you asked Megan about um, issues, right? Like that's the thing. Yep. You know, clients will come to us and say. I don't want a red issue and I don't want a blue issue. I'd like a purple issue, right? There's not a whole lot of purple issues to go around in 2023 in the United States of America. Um, again, though, that has a lot to do with framing, right? So, you know, there there's a different response to protecting the environment than there is to um, eradicating climate change, right? Just as in right. one, not shockingly, is more polarizing than the other, right? Just because of the way... Um, we've sort of drawn lines by language, right, in, in, in this country. But if you look at issues, you know, ranging from looking at some of the charts here from equal access and opportunities for people with disabilities to cybersecurity um, to women's equality in the workplace, all not particularly polarizing issues, right, for mm -hmm. companies to, to weigh in on. And then when you get to things like gun safety, criminal justice reform, women's rights to choose and LGBTQ plus equality becomes highly polarized. So it's really reflecting, you know, what we're seeing, um, you know, in the, in the broader universe. It doesn't mean that, you know, our clients won't weigh in on some of the more polarizing issues because they often do. Mm -hmm. um, but it just means they've got to be planful about it and explain the motivation to their most important stakeholder audiences. And just context for our listeners right now, if you happen to, to pull this up, I believe it's on page six, um, what Tanya's mentioning, but it's a it's a very cool infographic, um, sort of a, a thermostat style, if you will, um, just sort of gauging the the various degrees of risk um, for for various um, topics. So we have- right. Well, I would say, sorry to interrupt you, that yeah. it's, degree, it's, it's degree of polarization, which I, would normally say is degree of risk too, but not really because it all depends to your your question at the beginning on knowing your audience, right? Yeah. So in two, I've lost track of time, two business <laughs> and politics reports ago, something like that, we were testing Nike's ads with Colin Kaepernick, right? And everybody, not everybody, the conventional wisdom was that that was, a, that was so risky. He was a polarizing figure. Um, their sales would plummet. And it turned out, although it was a polarizing issue, um, their base loved it, right? The people who are already buying Nikes bought more Nikes. The yeah. people who hated Nike for this ad were buying Nikes to burn them, were not Nike customers to begin with. And so it can be polarizing and not risky if you know your audience. So I just yeah. want to make that distinction. The chart is fascinating from a polarization viewpoint. Yeah. So you can see how you talk about issues and sort of what that split is between um, both sides of the political spectrum. And in sort of your research and, and your studying of this, have you have you determined the sweet spot of like how many issues should a, a company attempt to take on? Do do you need to have a stance whether it's more vocalized or less on everything, or is it better to 
care a lot about a few things and be very vocal about those. Is there guidance or thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, we, we always say to, to go back to your core values and make the decision, your core corporate values and make the decision from, from there. Obviously, some can, um, can speak to and respond to a, a wider number, but you know, eventually you dilute it, right? And so we say, pick what's most important. There, there was a time, even a few years ago, that our clients were weighing, on, weighing in on every current event that was happening, um, national tragedy. And the sad fact is there's, there's too many, right? And so their employees, their stakeholders were getting communication fatigue because it was just, it was one CEO statement or corporate statement after another. Um, and so we're really encouraging our clients to take a look at you know, the top priorities for them. Are there things that directly relate to their business, their communities, their employees? Um, and then doing a, you know, for want of a better description, you know, coming up with some sort of filter, right? There's, there's, there's no end to the things that you can address, talk about, um, create programs and initiatives for, and everybody's going to be asking you to, you know, every affinity group, everybody's going to be asking you to, to weigh in somewhere, mm -hmm. you know, create that decision-making matrix so that you can sort of run that through those questions and then say, yeah, this is something that's really important that it, it, you know, it would be an obvious uh, omission if we did not weigh in or if we did not do something here. Yeah. And not everything's going to make it through that. And not everything should make it through that filter. Right. Right. Um, do you have any examples? I know we've we've kind of mentioned like Disney in the in the um, in the deck about like case studies or some sort of anecdotal elements about ways that um, these risk factors have sort of presented themselves or um, the polarization, I'm sorry, not to use risk again. Yeah. Uh, the polarization has uh, kind of uh, become an issue or some, a factor of consideration. Yeah, I mean, I think we'll start with Disney because it's a pretty robust case study and, yeah. and there's data because conveniently we've been tracking Disney's reputation um, sometime between 2017 and now as well, right? We, we track a lot of the big brands mm -hmm. um, over time in, in this report. And so what was really interesting to me as you watch sort of the standoff first between Disney and their employees, right? Over mm -hmm. the, the so-called don't say gay bill in, in Florida um, and the pressure they were receiving from their internal stakeholders, then to take a stance, then to go to war with the governor of Florida um, which you know played out on a, a national stage fairly spectacularly. When you look at what that did to their reputation, um, overall and over, since 2017, we're looking at something like only a four percent drop, um, and that's primarily with Republicans. But that's not even a big drop, right? So from a reputation, remember again, from a reputational perspective, we haven't been seeing um, a whole lot of, of negative results. Likewise, um, on consumer behavior, I don't know, you know, I'm not privy to, to their balance sheets, but they're a publicly traded company and you look at them and you can see, you know, that how, how they're doing. And so we'll see what happens, happens over time. Um, politically, they, you know, huge risk, right? They received a lot of pushback. They lost control of, of their local governance board. Um, but as we continue, this it unfolds, right? As you continue to read the news, turns out. Uh, they anticipated that and got all their permitting approvals they need for, for the foreseeable future. And so, um, you know, to be determined, but if that's one of the most visible 
and vicious um, fights that we've seen so far. Um, the results right now say they're going to be they're going to be okay or, or more than okay. Yeah. I think the, the other way that we see it play out um, with with our clients is for those that have significant operations in different states across the country, right? Red states and yeah. blue states. Um, and many of those have an employee base. Let's say they've got a more progressive employee base. So they're receiving again, you know, similar to Disney, incredible internal pressure to weigh in on a whole host of um, what's traditionally democratic issues. Yeah. Um, and they've got a leadership team that's saying, okay, that's great. And that might, play well on the East Coast or the West Coast. Um, but how's that going to play, um, not just with the governments in some of our other states, but with some of our employees there too. And that's the part um, that we've really had to help clients navigate sort of those different stakeholder audiences. How about when, um, when we've maybe seen the, a downward trend in reputation because of some unfortunate missteps or um, speaking out maybe too vocally on a subject. Mm -hmm. What is sort of the protocol or rule of thumb for, for starting to climb your way back? Is it to swing the pendulum the other way, stay quiet for a bit? What, how do you determine what the next steps look like? Yeah, it, it's obviously specific to the client and in the particular issue and, and, and whatever, you know, whatever that misstep was. Um, but I would say as a general rule, we often advise them not to swing the pendulum the other way really quickly, right? Um, it is, it's almost like we think about it when you make a mistake and you have to sort of go on a, a listening and apology tour, right? That's yeah. often your first step, right? You, you admit you made a mistake. You listen to the folks that are the aggrieved parties. You ask them what they would have done differently. Uh, you hear them out. And then you're thoughtful about what you're going to do next. You know, you take the time to, to step back and really analyze the situation and get away from some of the immediate emotion. And then you can decide what you do. And, and the most important thing in that instance is only say things that you know are doable, that you commit to doing, and that you're going to report on, right? As it goes, yeah. you see people making big promises. And then, you know, a couple a year goes by, two years go by, and then somebody invariably asks what you've, what you've done, right? And yeah. so it's better to, to report on your progress along the way. Nobody expects um, companies and leaders to be perfect, um, okay. but they do expect to see, to see progress and have some type of, of transparency in those conversations. So again, it's more of the, the process yeah. Um, you know, then a definitive, you need to do this and this is, you know, how fast you should move. Absolutely. And I guess that sort of sets up the question of, you know, we all came out of 2020 feeling like every company had a, a new initiative um, for DE&I and for, you yeah. know, workplace wellness and everything. And, and there was for a hot minute there in 2021, I think, and maybe even a little 22, like, a, a reflection on what did we do? Did we hold ourselves accountable? Um, what learnings, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot because this isn't identified in the, in the, the deck, but are there takeaways that we can, can infer from sort of this universal experience that everybody walked through in 2021 and 2020 and how people have maintained or not maintained there, um, well, Megan, you're talking about sort of the COVID sort of workplace disruption and coming yeah. back and taking care of your employees and, and that kind of thing. 
Yeah. yeah, I think though it's a really interesting question, and, and right, no data. So now you know we're having yeah. a conversation that you know my counterparts in research would say is founded in nothing, you know, but my opinion, <laughs> but also, but also my experience, right, and working yeah. working with my clients. Um, there was a lot of assumptions made about what employees wanted and needed, and where I, there were some there were some conversations, but I don't think enough. And so you know we moved fast and furiously to create all of these programs and structures, and you know not everybody took the time to let things settle a little bit and then ask the questions. You know what do you what do you really need? Or we set up programs that just didn't really have a great effect, but now it's hard to get, you know, to, to get rid of them. Right. So, um, because you get used to it. So I think, you know, it's the same thing from, from work from home, hybrid work for, you know, now we're having conversations and, and we do a lot of internal communication. So we're having a lot of conversations on behalf of our clients. Um, what, what do your employees actually want and need? How do they work best? And it's a little bit more of a, a gradual and thoughtful approach, right? We didn't see everybody mm -hmm. saying, okay, you know, it's, it's over now. Everybody's some, some industries send everybody back, yeah. you know, wholesale. But it, it seems now we're having a much more thoughtful conversation. And we're also understanding that our audiences are nuanced here too, right? So our employee bases are not homogenous. And we might have to come up with some different solutions for, for different groups of people. And so I think that was a great case study of not throwing everything into, you know, and the kitchen sink yeah. in, you know, to address a problem right away. Absolutely. But I will say, yep, what I can say for research, <laughs> we did a ton of research um, in, in COVID communications and in employee engagement. Um, companies experienced some of their highest favorability from their internal audiences during COVID, primarily because of the way they reacted to and during the pandemic. Right. And the supports that they provided. So I don't want to to discount um, what those efforts meant and that maybe they weren't, you know, the right ones or you know, the most effective or for the long term. But they bought a huge amount of goodwill um, yeah. with with employees. Absolutely. And um, I guess one one other question I had that was sort of more likening or like comparing 2020, 2021 to today, um, there was a lot of pressure on brands to react really fast. Yeah. And if you were at a company that wasn't reacting very fast, you were suddenly questioning, what does your company stand for, if nothing, yes. um, which is counter to any thoughtful decision. Uh, like the, It seemed like there was a, a price to pay by not taking a stance. There was. Yeah. Uh, as much as there was to taking too hasty of a, of a stance. Um, what, what is the, what happens when, you know, as a world, hopefully we don't all walk through this at the same time together again, but when there is an issue that requires a faster response or, or it seems like your consumer base is expecting something of you more immediately, um, what are some of the better ways to be prepared to know what you might do or you might respond with? Yeah, I mean, before I answer that question, because it's so interesting, right? There used to be a time before it was an expectation to respond in real time where first movers actually had a reputational benefit, right? The data shows there was a controversy, a national tragedy, some companies spoke out, huge reputational bump, right? The, the companies that never weighed in, 
uh, deficit, right? So to your point there, you were punished for not weighing in. Then the world got fast and furious and these events were happening every day. And we talked about that sort of engagement overload where you were expected to weigh in, you know, mm-hmm. all the time. And by the way, it was within the first couple hours, not even the first 24 hours, right? We, we yeah. tested, should you weigh in immediately? We live in real time society with all those expectations. And so it became, you know, clearly untenable yeah. um, and, and probably ill-advised to be honest. So, you know, but there, there is, and hopefully it is not on the scale of what we, we just experienced, but where it's obvious that something needs to happen, that's a conversation that companies should be having right now, right? They should have the conversation of, you know, when will we move quickly? It's a scenario plan, right? It's, it's, it's like the crisis scenario planning, you know, that we do, do for our clients, not from an operational perspective, but from an engagement and a communications perspective. These are the types of issues where we need to respond within X number of hours, X number of days. Um, okay, well, what will guide that? Who will guide that? What does the operational structure look like? Um, should we start talking about, you know, what platforms we'll use to communicate? How will we do that, et cetera? And so um, it's incredibly empowering when you can have those conversations in a lower stress environment where mm-hmm. you can go back and forth a million times and tweaking the, the statement or the email. Um, and then you can run it by legal and then you can focus group it and you can have it ready um, as opposed to by focus group. I mean, with your, you know, your important yeah. stakeholders um, and then you're ready and you can might need to tweak it yeah. when it's go time, but you're not starting from, from scratch. And so, and you also know if it's something that's not important for you to weigh in or, you know, if, if, if there's no choice. Yeah. That matrix that you mentioned a few minutes ago really comes into play in sort of setting you up for, um, as you had mentioned, I think in one of our, in our prep conversation, pre-gaming, like coming up with your pre-game strategy, right? Um, And there is something so useful about a matrix to just say, almost rank it in, in um, uh, urgency or, you know, like the prioritization of how fast should a response be? Um, yeah. yeah, it's just, it, listen, there's just, as, as we've said over and over again today, there's there's so much that companies and leaders are called on to address and engage with that without that structure, that that in itself is a full-time job trying to make those those decisions. So, so putting a little um, structure and discipline around that while staying true to your organizational values, principles, um, you know, and, and stakeholders is, is incredibly helpful. I mean, I can't, can't speak enough to, you know, what, what we've seen on both sides of that, right? How you react when you have a plan and structure like that and how you're forced to react and respond when you don't. Yeah. Um, and, and when we talk about like stakeholders or the focus group, how much importance or credence do you think, uh, should be given to, should a lot of people have eyes on something right before it goes out? Should it go to your company to see if your employer base has gross objection? Do you, do you, have you already decided to take that risk at that point? I know these are kind of like scenario based things, but yeah. for businesses who are, who are wondering how far do I step out? How, how loud do I yell out? Um, what is sort of the, the rule of thumb yeah, uh, the closer you get, the fewer people who should be editing or having eyes on it, right? I mean, we've all had the experience with with our clients and folks who are, are in-house where 
you're trying to get something out the door and you're editing it with 10 people and that's just never going to go. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah. not so um, decide who needs to weigh in. If there's proxies for, for certain groups or people um, have it ready to go. And ultimately it should be a really small and tight group that makes any final uh, edits or changes. And then, cause, cause you, you should have pre-gamed your risk ahead of time, right? It's not, it's not the time to do that, you know, during whatever the situation is. Absolutely. Um, and, and to circle back to some of the earlier things that we were opening with, which was language matters and the framing of things matter. Um, can you talk us through a little bit about, you know, we talked about the difference between, um, like, I think it was maybe global warming versus environmental as a, yeah. a broadly friendlier uh, type uh, or approachable type uh, bucket. But what are some of the other ways, you know, that that the framing can really work to a brand's advantage as they're trying to navigate? Yeah, framing it with, um, with respect to your stakeholders, right? This is important for my employees because. This is important for my community because. Um, it can even be, this is important for our bottom line. You know, I mean, right, like ESG was born out of an investment strategy that assumes that it is a better investment strategy because it's looking at long-term risks, right? So you can even frame it as this is, it's good for my bottom line. Um, but when you, you think about your different stakeholder groups, think about framing why it is important to them Mm-hmm. Um, and if you explain your motivation, everything that we have seen in the data and everything that we've experienced with our clients that even if people don't agree, in fact, we even tested, even if it is politically controversial, right? Yeah. It is still um, a vast majority find that to be uh, acceptable, right? And favorable for, for a company to do that. So it's really about um, bringing it home and explaining the why. Um, mm-hmm. And you've got great latitude to weigh in um, on even politically controversial issues. Absolutely. Um, you have given us so much to think about today. You've given us some great resources and tools online that I hope our listeners will also go check out. Um, this has been a really fascinating conversation, which could go on for a long time. And hopefully we'll, there will be an 11th edition and maybe we'll get to chat on that one too, to talk about the differences. I but. would love to do that. <laughs> Absolutely. Any um, parting thoughts, things that we have overlooked? I know we've covered a lot of ground today. Yeah, I think maybe just remind, you know, remind communicators that, um, while this see, you know, what there's a disconnect by what we're hearing from some policymakers and the coverage in the media and what the American public actually wants and is interested in. And in fact, if you pull them and ask them what they care about, you will hear things like inflation and jobs and healthcare and crime and social security and Medicare, et cetera, et cetera. And way, way, way at the bottom of the list will be investigating how U.S. companies spend money on ESG initiatives. So um, I hope that um, some, of our, some of our clients can take, uh, take comfort in that and heart in that. And again, it doesn't mean it's without, it's without risk, but I really um, am glad that you gave us the opportunity to put some of that in perspective. Thank you, Tanya Mech and Global Strategy Group, GSG, for joining us. This has been the Provoke Media Podcast.
You've been listening to the Provoke podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. <laughs>